Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 74 to 141. What is Scripture and Tradition? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Well, welcome everyone um, to the second session. Um, Today we're going to specifically deal with uh, divine revelation and how it's transmitted, how it's passed on, how it is revealed, especially in tradition, scripture, in those two modes. To kind of recap, which I'll try to do... um, just so that there's a consistency, maybe if you miss a day, at least you get the gist of where we've come from and and to where we're going. So we're reminded that the Catechism has these four parts. The first, which is the one that we're going to focus on um, in in these next couple months, is essentially on the Creed. Now, last week I said that you can kind of summarize these parts, the first one on the creed, the second one on the seven sacraments, the third one on the Ten Commandments, and the fourth one on prayer, Um, and then specifically you might say the Our Father as sort of the model of prayer. But in all of these parts, there is a beginning section which kind of sets out um, principles or thoughts, or an introduction to the theme. And then it goes through sort of a systematic commentary on, in this case, the creed in the first part, or in the case of the second part, the seven sacraments, and, and such and such. So we're actually, in, in, this, in, these la- in these first couple weeks, we haven't touched the creed yet. Yesterday we were, or last week, we were introduced to a structure that is built into this first part of the catechism, which actually serves as a structure for the whole catechism. And it begins, first of all, with this notion of man's search for God. The second is God's reaching out to man. And then the third is man's response to that. Now, these serve as the intro part for this section on the creed. But like I said, they also serve as a structure for the whole catechism. Now, in these three sections of this intro to the first part... Man's search for God, we did that yesterday, we covered that yesterday, and it's really only, you know, maybe 50 paragraphs. It's not very long. And it really, that small amount does kind of point to the, to the limited knowledge we can have by God, of God just by our natural reason. That we can know that he exists, but we really only have a limited knowledge of, of who God is based just on our reason our observance of the, wor- of the world or our study of the human person. Then, in the second p- 
part of the intro to the creed section, creed part, we have God's reaching out to man. So man is searching for God. God reaches out to him because man can only do so much. This section really talks about revelation. And then finally, um, in the intro, which we will cover next week, man's response, which is faith. Now that's the intro for this first part. Kind of gives us a structure for it. Let's us know what we have done. We have covered man's search for God. Tonight we're going to cover out man, revelation. Next week we're going to cover this response, man's response, which is faith. But that also, the, this threefold action, which is found in the intro here to the first part, is also the structure for the whole catechism. So, man's search for God, very basic. The content of God's reaching out to man, the content of that revelation, is the first part, the creed. The creed really is a summary of all that God has revealed about himself. Our response, or we might say the act of faith, Entails the second part, the third part, and the fourth part of the catechism. So our response to the creed is the life of the sacraments, the moral life, and prayer. So I think it's kind of this beautiful structure that within the first part of the catechism, in this intro even to this first part, there's already a summary of the entire catechism. So we turn then to the topic of the day, which is God's reaching out to man in Revelation. We introduced it last week by summarizing one man's need for Revelation, that though we have a reason that can understand the world and can even know that there is a personal God. The human person still needs this, and in fact really needs this divine assistance in order to come to know God and to enter into a relationship with him. And so God reveals himself gradually through the ages, through various covenants, until the fulfillment of all the covenants, the final revelation, which is Jesus Christ. So, in these uh, paragraphs, paragraph 74 is what we're starting on today. And we're going to try to make it to paragraph 141, which we will successfully do somehow. Um, in that... In that, we have the process or the explanation of how God's revelation has been transmitted and communicated and handed on. So God reveals himself fully in Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. 
He has done so, Christ has revealed himself, in order to save the human race. And so his message might reach to every age and every person and every nation. He has established his revelation that it might be handed on, that it might be transmitted through the ages. We first focus on, and in paragraph 75 we have the title, we first focus on the apostolic tradition. So it is kind of, you know, I mean, we were probably all watching football before we came here today. So exactly, precisely, how was the ball handed on from the quarterback to the running back? And that really is what these paragraphs 75 through 79 are first telling us, is how was it that Christ communicated to the apostles and then the apostles handed that message on, handed on what they've received? Well, first of all, we are reminded that it is Christ who is the fullness of this revelation. We keep emphasizing that point. Um, And that he has revealed himself to a particular group, to these 12 apostles who were closely associated with him. Although we hear throughout the scriptures that the crowds followed Jesus and he often spoke to the crowds, there was this small group that were with him all the time from the beginning to the end of his public ministry and were privy to the fullness of what he was to reveal. These apostles, and the word apostle means to be sent out, are sent out. In paragraph 76, in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. Now, if if you remember last week, there are these um, words which all in some sense as synonyms, but they kind of point to different dimensions. So sometimes we use the phrase word of God. Sometimes, as we did in the, um, the end of the section last week, we use this phrase, the deposit of faith. Here, we use the phrase gospel. Now, in a sense, they're being used as synonyms, but they each kind of point to something unique about this. Of course, the Word of God points to the fact that ultimately it is the divine revelation and it is Christ who is communicating it, who is the fullness of this revelation. Christ himself is the fullness of this revelation. The deposit of faith is this sense of everything that has been revealed that is being transmitted and safeguarded. It really emphasizes the transmission of the truth. Gospel reminds us, really, of the centrality of Christ in this message, that it is a message of good news, and that within it is a very basic message that kind of um, evolves, or shall we say, expands 
into this very beautiful understanding of all that God has revealed. And so Christ proclaimed the gospel to the apostles. Of course, we see this throughout the gospels all the time, that Christ spoke, but then he would also do things. Sometimes he didn't even speak. So, for instance, at the Last Supper, when he washes the feet of the apostles, that's communicating divine revelation, but in actions, not necessarily in words. The apostles, having heard and seen all that Christ did, are sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel. And they do it in two ways. The apostles, first of all, preach. We call this the oral transmission. And then, of course, later they write the written transmission. So before Peter or Paul or James or John wrote any of their letters... They first went to a community, instituted the life of faith, preached and talked to to people, instructed them and taught them in person. And then when they would leave, they would write back to these communities. In both ways, in their preaching and in their writing, they were handing on what Christ had revealed to them. And there is benefits, of course, to both. You can say more orally in speaking and teaching. And you can clarify things better that way, as opposed to writing. But when you need a summary and something really to hold on to, almost as a constant, easy reminder, the writing form helps. And so both are necessary and both were present in the apostles' own preaching. This sets up um, the kind of a, the, the sort of twofold transmission of revelation that happens in tradition and in scripture. And this is a very human thing, you know. There are some cultures which are more oral, that they hand on things, um, that they convey the truths and messages of the culture through speaking outlets, through storytelling, through things like that. They're marked by great memory. And then there are some cultures, mostly what we would say post-Renaissance, that are written cultures, that are primarily um, communicate truths and concepts and messages and culture through writing. And in our own lives, we know that sometimes we speak and sometimes we write. And sometimes it's easier to communicate something by writing. Sometimes it's easier to communicate it in a spoken way. Call someone rather than to text them. It reminds us that the transmission of revelation and revelation itself is a very human thing. That it takes on these sort of um, human elements. 
that God communicates himself in a very human way so that we can understand him. The apostles, of course, before they died, wherever they would establish the church, appointed bishops and presbyters and deacons. But especially the job of the bishop was to ensure that the revelation that had been received would be transmitted. Bishops primarily are teachers, not to negate all their other functions, but their job is to ensure that what has been received from the apostles is handed on. And so we have what is called apostolic succession, that we can trace from the apostles, bishops, down through the line, through the line. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who I referenced last week and who I will probably reference multiple times, maybe every week. Um, Irenaeus, in his great book, Adversus Heresis, says that, you know, there are all of these different churches throughout the world, these local churches throughout the world, that have been established by the apostles and that we can trace from the apostles all of their different bishops a succession. But he says, but because Rome is most important, let us focus on that. And he goes through a list of like the first 12 popes, the first 12 bishops of Rome. In paragraph 78, we have a definition of tradition. And you'll notice that in this section of the catechism, tradition is oftentimes capitalized to emphasize this particular usage of the word tradition as one of the sources of revelation or how revelation is transmitted. The living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. So the catechism is teaching us that there is this tradition, big T tradition, which is this transmission of the gospel of the message of Jesus Christ through the apostles and through their successors. And that it is a living transmission. Now, there is a danger, I think, for us to think that the tradition is just an oral communication and that Scripture is the written communication. This is a danger. You know, the Catechism does say that the apostles orally transmitted revelation through their preaching, through their establishment of institutions and of of the sacraments, and then also in their writing in the letters of the New Testament. But the tradition is communicated in rituals and gestures and actions and how we worship. It's definitely communicated through preaching and teaching, but it was also communicated through the writings of the early successors of the apostles. People like St. Irenaeus of Lyon or St. Ignatius of Antioch or um, St. Hippolytus or St. Justin Martyr. 
the early fathers of the church who have left us writings. So we don't want to just say that the tradition is this oral or ritual transmission. It also includes writings. Then in the next section, we can switch to paragraph 80. We really go into the relationship between tradition and sacred scripture. So it's interesting, the catechism first explains tradition. And this is because in some sense, tradition predates scripture. Now we know that the scripture contains the Old Testament, which is thousands of years older than Christ in some parts. But at least in regards to the New Testament and to the, and to the transmission of the fullness of revelation of Jesus Christ, in some ways the tradition is older than the Scripture. In fact, um, Paul writes about that. Um, I think it's in First Thessalonians. Um, but I... I But anyway, he talks about how he has received this tradition and that he has handed it on to others. Next week, I'll have the reference for us. Um, The the idea is, is that even before the letters were written, the Gospels were written, the apostles were handing on through their preaching and their teaching and their establishing of the church in different towns and bishops in those different towns, the, the process of the tradition, of the handing on of revelation through tradition was already happening. And that the writings of the New Testament reflect that tradition. In these sections, paragraph 80 through 83, we could say, we see the relationship being established between tradition and scripture. In paragraph 80, we hear that there is one source, or that there is one word of God, one revelation in Jesus Christ. But it has two distinct modes of transmission. That one word of God, we might call that the deposit of faith. It's it's transmitted in two different ways. There are two modes of transmission. The first is sacred scripture. In 81 we hear, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. So in order to hand on this one word of God, at times the Lord has inspired writers to write inspired works by the breath of the Holy Spirit. So that one word of God is handed on through scripture, sacred scripture. And it is also handed on through the tradition. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from holy scripture alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment and devotion and reverence. This is all from the document Dei Verbum, which is a document that the Second Vatican Council put out on um, sacred scripture. But really, a lot of it is on this 
the relationship of sacred scripture to tradition and how the one word of God is communicated. But what we want to remember is that it is both sacred scripture and tradition. To slight one for the other is a problem. Apostolic tradition and ecclesial traditions in 83 we get an explanation of the difference between this big T tradition versus little t traditions. So there's a difference between big T tradition and little t traditions. So both the big T and the little t, but also the singular versus the plural. The big T tradition is this content, this understanding of revelation that's being handed on, the deposit of faith. The little T traditions are the vehicle by which that is being handed on. So the particular way or the particular um, part of of the mass that has evolved perhaps over time and over the history of the church or particular prayers, or particular devotions, or particular um, disciplines. So, for instance, that we do this during Lent, or we don't do this during Lent, how those evolve over time. Those little T traditions, on the one hand, they're not the big T tradition. You know, Jesus did not reveal the season of Lent to the apostles. However, these little t traditions are crucial and they're important and they should never be kind of cast aside at whim or altered or tinkered with just at whim because those little t traditions have value and dignity because they hand on the big t tradition. So there should be this sense of, um, of respect for little t traditions. But there, is to- there are times, in, it would seem, in the um, development of the church that a little t tradition no longer seems to communicate the big t tradition anymore. And it is in those times that I think, really by the working of the Holy Spirit, those things kind of die out. But, of course, we don't want to kind of kill them inorganically, you know. I think we've all, and and in this, I think we've all suffered from, um, in the life of the church, um, perhaps from misguided theologians or priests or whoever else, um, that have kind of intentionally um, disregarded or thrown out little t traditions that have a lot of sentimental value for us, but also are quite important for the handing on of the big T tradition. I think it's best to really allow the Holy Spirit to kind of guide these things rather than to sort of inorganically um, kill things. You know, if, if, if the Lord doesn't want a little T tradition to continue, if it's no longer faithfully handing on the big E tradition, then it will die out. I mean, we have to entrust that to the Lord. So, We'll take questions afterwards, so if you want to write them down, um, we'll gladly entertain them. So, um, In paragraph 84, if we press forward, um, 
The apostles entrusted the sacred deposit, this deposit of faith, contained in sacred scripture and tradition to the whole of the church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people united to its pastors remain always faithful to the teachings of the apostles. So one of the things that we can perhaps um, understand this whole package is, so the, um, Jesus Christ reveals himself to the apostles, who in turn communicate in their writings and in the tradition this content, this message, to the bishops who are their successors, who are called to faithfully keep handing on those, t- those sources which contain all of that fullness, Perhaps one whole arrow, arrow might do the trick. I can't draw an arrow. but So the idea then, um, the bishops, the successors of the apostles, have received from the apostles this content of sacred scripture and tradition of this one word of God that's communicated by these two sources And it's their job to see it faithfully handed on. In 86, we're introduced to this phrase, this term, magisterium, which means of the teachers. Of the teachers. It's used to describe the successors of the apostles. So, the successor of St. Peter, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome... And all of those bishops who are you in communion with him consist of the magisterium. And it is their job to faithfully hand on what has been received. Now that includes teaching, but at times, and we see this in paragraph 88, it requires clarifications. And that's a way that we can understand this notion of dogma. I think the, the analogy that I use is this notion of the cedar chest. Again, I, used, I introduced that yesterday. The deposit of faith is this cedar chest. In it is everything which Christ has revealed to us. The content of Scripture and of the tradition. At times... The magisterium needs to check to see what's in there, in a sense to do an inventory that's in there, to make sure that someone isn't trying to take something out of that that should be in there, or to put something in there that is not supposed to be in there. The catechism in paragraph 88 defines dogmas. A dogma is when the church, when the magisterium proposes in a form obliging the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith, truths contained in divine revelation or also 
when it proposes in a definitive way truths having a necessary connection with them. So it says, was this always a part of the content or was this not always a part of the content? With this is the notion then of, I think, of understanding. So we have received the fullness of this cedar chest with all that it contains from the apostles handed on through sacred scripture and tradition. But we, we, don't, we haven't quite fully understood what it all means and, and what it all entails. And this also is the work of the magisterium, but it's also the work, really, of the whole church, is to deepen our understanding of the content of that. And this actually is set up in paragraphs 94 and 95, this idea of deepening our understanding. But before we jump too far, just to kind of um, finish the role of the magisterium, who has this crucial job of making sure that this, this revelation is transmitted. We hear a distinction in 89, or, um, or a sort of even a complementary relationship. There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. Why is it that we have to have dogma or doctrine? The Catechism answers this question, which I think we face in the modern age all the time. People who will say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, or it doesn't really matter what we teach or what your doctrine or dogma is. It doesn't really matter as long as I have you know, good intentions or I'm living a spiritual life. Well, the Catechism reminds us that The spiritual life really is a living fully of what Jesus Christ has taught. And that there is an organic connection between the way that we live our life and the things that we believe and profess. I think one of the beautiful things of going through the catechism and seeing how everything is connected it reminds us that even those things in the creed that we profess every day or every week that seem kind of remote and mysterious, they form, they actually form how we live our lives. That's why that first part of the catechism, the creed, the content of what God has revealed, leads to the last three parts which is how we live our lives. Within this connection, there's a hierarchy of truths. There are some teachings, some doctrine, which are so fundamental to the message of Christianity that they need to be emphasized. The others kind of flow from those. In 91, 92, and 93, we are again reintroduced to this concept of the sensus fidelium, the sense of the faithful. That each one of us, the bishops, priests, 
religious, laity, because of their baptism, have this gift to really understand the content of revelation, the content of the deposit of faith, a supernatural appreciation on the part of the whole people. It does require a docility and a fidelity and a faithfulness to the church and to the bishops, to the magisterium. But it really points to um, a kind of a supernatural understanding that what is right teaching and what is wrong teaching. And, you know, in my life as a Catholic, I have seen this. You know, I think there's this big danger, there's this worry when we hear this phrase, census fidelium, that, you know, somehow that means that doctrine are up to debate and that, all oh, we can have this synod of all of these people, um, lay people, religious, priests, bishops, and they can all just vote on what we want to believe in. Um, that's this fear when we hear this notion of census fidelium. But, you know, I've seen the census fidelium work in wonderful ways. You know, where I've been at, you know, to Catholic high schools, they didn't, they didn't do this to me, but to other teachers, where good, solid Catholic kids who had been raised in good, solid Catholic families were, ever, were able to point out to their religion teachers when they were in error. Or, you know, um, lay people who correct priests who give heretical homilies, you know, or who dismiss um, crucial teachings of the faith or who minimize certain, you know, teachings of the faith. And even bishops, you know, that we have seen that at times the laity have to chastise bishops. Um, there is this, this great... Um, sort of dangerous, traumatic point in the history of the church when the heresy of Arianism was taking over the whole world. And most of the bishops became Arians, except for a few of the good ones like Athanasius and others that were able to, to stand up. But it wasn't just Athanasius and, and these few bishops, but there were also a lot of lay people who stood up and said, no, this is not right teaching. So we see this, this supernatural sense of the faith really in practice in the life and in the history of the church. And that also, I think, leads to this idea of understanding that, yes, the magisterium has this job of teaching, of making sure that, it's faith, that the, the truth is faithfully handed on. But for us to really deepen our understanding of it, to allow it to make more sense and to help to form our lives more intimately. It really is the work of all of us. It's the work of those who are contemplating in prayer on these great truths or who study them as academics. Um, It's from those who simply are just trying to grow better in their lives, to grow in holiness. And it certainly comes about from the work of priests and bishops and in their preaching as well. This section of the Catechism leads us then with an image that this sort of revelation of Christ 
the truth of Christ, is supported by three legs. It's a three-legged chair. Sacred Scripture, which is that teaching of the apostles handed on in their inspired writings. The tradition, which is the teaching of the apostles handed on through their preaching, their teaching, the institution of the church which they they have established. And then finally, there is the magisterium, the successors to the apostles, whose job it is to faithfully hand on tradition and sacred scripture. Without one of those legs, the chair collapses. All three are necessary. And really, in our lives as Christians, because there is a connection between what the church teaches and how we live our lives, really our lives collapse without one of these three legs. And then that leads us in into the section on sacred scripture. We have an introduction to Scripture and to its importance. And then the Catechism sets up for us in paragraph 105 through 108 what we call the three eyes of Scripture, the three eyes of Scripture. The three eyes are, first, that Scripture is inspired, is inspired. In 105, we hear that God is the author of sacred scripture. He inspires, in 106, human authors to compose the books. That by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they write them according to their own Age, their own faculties and powers and abilities and styles. But nonetheless, they communicate this inspired message of revelation. So 105 and 106 deal with this inspiration. 107 introduces the second I, which is inerrant. Scripture is inerrant. It is free from error. We must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided in the sacred Scriptures. The Scriptures are inspired when they teach on faith and morals. when they communicate those truths which God wanted to be communicated through them. And then in 108, the third I, Scripture is inspiring, inspiring, with an I-N-G at the end, that it continues to be a source of spiritual enlightenment for us. It is a living word, not a dead letter, but it keeps striking us. 
Every time we read a passage of Scripture, even the same passage, it says something new to us. It communicates some, some new message, some new part of this truth to us. The Catechism says that Christianity is not a religion of the book, a religion of the book, which is to say that God has left us this manual and it's just some book that we must kind of literally read um, as if every aspect of it was the very word of God himself. What we are reminded, of course, is that Scripture is the Word of God in that it is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ speaking to us. The Catechism in these sections, um, I think, is doing a beautiful balancing job. In the last section that we just um, read, it really wants us to remember the balance between scripture and tradition. In this section, it wants us to remember, though, that even though scripture and tradition are both absolutely necessary and interconnected and are both these two modes of transmission of the one word of God, that there is something special about scripture. That in some sense, it communicates Um, in a very particular and and unique and inspired way, that it makes present Christ himself. There's um, a section of the catechism, I think it was earlier in this section, where we're reminded that the church venerates Scripture like it venerates Christ's body in the Eucharist that the scriptures themselves are communicating the presence of Christ. But on the other hand, there is still this idea that we're not a religion of the book. Still, the Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is the religion of the Word of God. A word which is not a written and mute word, but a word which is incarnate and living. That word, ultimately, of course, is Jesus Christ. Then we go into the interpretation of Scripture, which I think is a great section for um, every Catholic to read, 108 through 120, because it really lays out for us basic rules and principles to help us in our Bible study. And I will say, just to emphasize this in case I forget it, I do think that all of us need more what we call biblical literacy. That really engaging in in the study of Scripture is something that we all must do. St. Jerome says that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. So how can we really approach Scripture, either on our own studying or in a group um, or in our daily prayer and meditation? Well, there are a couple different rules, I would say maybe a dozen rules which are established in this section to help us. First of all, we should be attentive 
to the human authorship of Scripture. That the Lord uses these unique men or, or women in the writing of sacred Scripture. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, then, we need to take into account certain things. First of all, the conditions of their times and culture, perhaps the literary genres that they used, and by that, so how they wrote. So in different ages throughout the history of the human race, we've approached the writing of history in different ways. In some periods, it really was about the basic message. Or, in other times, it was about trying to detail every single event in the life of a person. Or, really, and this is common in our own day, is to take some sort of theme or some sort of cause that really formed this person and really tell the story of their life based on this. So there are different ways of even doing history throughout the history of the world. We also have to keep in mind the way that they speak or the way that they use particular words or the way that they tell stories. Or are they writing in uh, more of a poetic sense? These things must be taken into account. But we also have to remember that Scripture is written by God, too, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, then, we can keep three things always in mind. First of all, that all of Scripture is united. That the stuff in Genesis is pointing to the stuff in Revelation that's pointing to the prophets, that's pointing to the Gospels, that's pointing back to Moses or to the Psalms. That we should read Scripture with this sense that this is connected to other parts in this book, this big book. Second, we ought to read Scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. That this scripture is pointing to the big T tradition. That they really are saying the same thing. And so we have to understand sacred scripture with the tradition in mind. But also use those vehicles by which the tradition has been communicated to help us to understand scripture. So through the writings of the fathers of the church or the writings of the saints. And then also we're told to be attentive to the analogy of faith. That somehow all of these different passages that we're reading or studying have connections to the things that we believe. And so to try to read them with a connection to the catechism itself. The Catechism also proposes to us four senses of scriptures. The first is this literal sense, by which we read the passage just in mind of what it's trying to say. What the human author is communicating and what the divine author is communicating in this context. The next three are what we call a spiritual sense that we also read this passage 
with an allegorical sense. How is this pointing to Jesus Christ and to his church and to the sacraments? But primarily, how is this passage talking about Jesus Christ? So when we read the Psalms and we hear about some man suffering, having his beard plucked out or his his hands pierced or his side pierced, well, we should think this is pointing to Jesus and to his passion. Or the moral sense. When I read this passage, how is it telling me that I should live my life? What's it saying? How's it instructing me? And then the anagogical sense is, how is this pointing to what God has promised to me? To heaven, to eternal life. The Catechism also tells us that there is a canon of Scripture. Canon meaning official list. Canon meaning official list. In which... We believe that there are 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books for the New Testament. Now that list of 46 books from the Old Testament comes from what we call the Septuagint. So at the time of Christ and before, really, um, uh, Around approximately, I think, 70 B.C., it was developed, there was a translation of the scripture, the Jewish scriptures, by 70 rabbis. They translated it from Hebrew, or if it was in Greek, they kept it in Greek, but they translated it all into Greek and put it together. And it consisted of these 45 or 46 books. That was the scripture that was used by most of the Jews in the world at the time of Christ. Most of them, even the ones that lived in the Holy Land, didn't quite understand Hebrew, or at least that well. And so often they would just read the Greek, which was much easier for them to understand. It is the version of the Old Testament that was quoted in the Gospels and in the letters of the New Testament. It wasn't until around 100 AD that Judaism began to move from the usage of the Septuagint to just the original Hebrew text. And in that, because there were some books that were only known to be in Greek, they cut those books out. But at the time of Christ, the Old Testament that that he would have used consisted of these 45 books. It was at the Council of Trent that the definitive list of the Old and New Testament was made. However, it was definitively defined at Trent. However, it was, even in the 200s AD, pretty much solidly established, these two lists. There is an, um, an ancient text called the Moratorian Fragment that contains these lists. We're also reminded in this section of the interconnection between the Old and the New Testament. That we should read the Old Testament as pointing to the New Testament, and we should read the New Testament in the context of the Old Testament. Chief of that, of course, is to remember 
that it is the same God of the Old Testament as it is of the New Testament, and that the full revelation of Jesus Christ includes the truths of the Old Testament which have been handed on. He fulfills all of those covenants. So the Old Testament is, is, is of great value. It's something which cannot be dismissed or rejected. Not that any of you would reject the Old Testament, of course. But In paragraph 126, um, we have an interesting... It's, it's about the writing of the gospel, but it also, I think, illuminates the transmission of revelation. How revelation has been transmitted to us. In paragraph, it's talking about how the Gospels came to be about, came to be. The four Gospels, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it also really is, is an explanation of the apostolic preaching, of how the apostles handed it on. First, there was the life and teaching of Jesus. How he taught the crowds. And then the apostles had this oral tradition. So they, the apostles preached, and then, and then later they put these things to writing, or put some of these things to writing. So that gives a nice little kind of easy outline in paragraph 126, really of how, how Revelation, how the New Testament in general was communicated. Two points to end on. First of all is this connection between the Old and the New Testament. There is this idea of typology. Typology means that something in the Old Testament points to something happening in Christ or in the New Testament. So, for instance, when God gives the Hebrews manna in the desert in the Exodus... We know that that points to the Eucharist. That's typology. Or that um, when Christ, or when in the Old Testament there is this bronze serpent on a cross that's lifted up, and when people look on it, they're delivered from these serpents that are biting them. Well, just Christ uses the same typology as he's lifted up on the cross people will be delivered from that which bites us, namely sin. So this is this idea of typology. And then second, I emphasize the point of the need for biblical literacy, that each of us really, in order to grow as disciples of the Lord, really need a knowledge of sacred Scripture, that really the study of sacred Scripture is something, I think, which should be a part of our life every week at least, some time um, for this study. Well, let's end with a prayer, and then we'll do questions. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.